I never really thought much about Mother's Day. Growing up, those holidays weren't the biggest deal in our house. We did cards, flowers, met somewhere for brunch when we were older. It was always nice, but it wasn't that important. You're probably expecting me to say that becoming a mother last year changed how I saw Mother's Day. That's not really true. What becoming a mother actually did was change how I saw my own mother. You get pregnant and suddenly there are so many books to read, so many experts telling you exactly what to expect. And then you have the baby and you realize that there was no possible way to prepare yourself for what happens next. Like how whoever said sleep when the baby sleeps definitely didn't actually have a baby. Like how holding this tiny creature will make your heart swell so big with love that you're sure it will explode. That you'll pledge to do everything you can to protect this child, to devote every ounce of yourself to making their life as peaceful and as beautiful as they are. That you'll spend every day full of wonderment and worry. That those shaky first days will blur into weeks and weeks will become months and all of a sudden you'll look down at a babbling, beaming nine-month-old and think, wow, we did this. My daughter. It feels thrilling every time I say it. That magical relationship I have with her makes me think of my own mother, who I always appreciated, of course, but who I now realize made all sorts of decisions because of me and my sister. From where to raise her family to how to raise her family, it was all for us. Now that I know what even nine months of it looks like on the other side, I just feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude to her for bringing me into the world and for everything she did for me along the way and still does for me today. That's what I'm thinking about as I head into my first Mother's Day. I know this day isn't always easy, whether you're missing a loved one or having difficulty on your journey to parenthood, or you just aren't that into Mother's Day. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. And today, in honor of Mother's Day, we're embracing everything about motherhood. The messy, the funny, the sad, and the profound. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I'll be your guide on this special Mother's Day episode. Mark and Liel will be back next week. We're bringing you an interview with Ilana Frank of the Jewish Fertility Foundation and a conversation with comedian Esther Steinberg about her postpartum comedy special, Burning Bush. We'll also hear from Rabbi Ilana Garber about her son's diagnosis 10 years ago of Fragile X Syndrome. And our very own producer, Robert Scaramuccia, shares a moving story about his mother. So enough about me. Let's get to the show. Ilana Frank founded the Jewish Fertility Foundation and hosts the podcast Fruitful and Multiplying. I talked to her about how her fertility journey inspired her to create an organization that provides financial assistance, emotional support, and educational programming to others in the Jewish community. Ilana Frank, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. I am super, super excited to be here. So Tell us, you have a brand new podcast. It's called Fruitful and Multiplying with Jewish Fertility Foundation. There's a lot to get to here. I think we should start maybe with, with you, and then we'll get to Jewish Fertility Foundation, and we'll get to the podcast. Who are you? Tell us about yourself. I'm like a typical Jewish gal. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I did my time on the Upper West Side of New York in the whole dating scene, I had one too many bad dates. I fled the Upper West Side and ultimately moved back to Atlanta, met my husband. We were married within nine months of meeting each other. We couldn't find our space in Atlanta and decided to make Aliyah. We tried to have babies and we 
tried to do it the old-fashioned way, and it just didn't work. So because of the type of personality I am, I quickly went to a doctor in Israel, and they asked me how long I had been trying to have a baby. And it was already well over a year by that point. And so they quickly started me on medication. I thought I was going to get pregnant and have babies, and it didn't go as planned. I confided in my aunt in Israel who was in the medical field. I like had never told anybody before that I was going through something. I didn't even know what I was going through. And she, of course, asked me, do you know how to have sex? Do you need to relax and go on vacation? And I'm like, like, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you doing wrong? Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I don't know how to have sex. Maybe I am <laughs> freaking out and stressing out my body. But ultimately, she gave me the name of a prestigious doctor in Israel. He invited us to his house in the evenings for private care, which we were like, okay, we want a baby. Like, we're Americans who are used to paying for treatment. Went to his basement. It was an hour away from our house, month after month after month. He would look at my husband's sperm in his microscope after my husband did what he needed to do in the bathroom of his private house at like 8.30 at night. And then he would proceed to perform IUIs on me, which is the turkey baster method. And of course I was going to get pregnant because like he's literally inserting the sperm into me. And he says my husband's sperm is fine. And like he never checks me, but what do I know? And this is month after month. We're paying writing checks and things are really tense between my husband and I. Basically, I'm not getting pregnant. Then it starts feeling really, really weird. Ultimately, my husband and I are like, this is weird. And we search for another doctor. And of course, during this time, my friends are all calling me they're pregnant. I'm on some hormones and my stomach is getting flabbier. And people at my office are like poking my stomach. It's Israel asking me why I'm not having a child or am I pregnant? What's going on? Ultimately, we find this awesome doctor, and he actually gives me a diagnosis that my tubes are blocked. Because of socialized medicine, I was able to move forward with IVF for free, got pregnant, and was able to have my now almost 11-year-old through that process. From this experience, you started the Jewish Fertility Foundation. So where are we now? I ultimately ended up getting pregnant again a year later, and I had two children very quickly. And I was really, really lucky that IVF worked for me. My husband got recruited back to America. And I remember right when I got back to America, I was sitting in a baby pool at the JCC. And keep in mind, I was so private. Like, I'm coming here talking about sperm and all that kind of stuff with you, but I was so hyper-private when I was in Israel, and I didn't even know the language to talk about what I had been going through. But when I was in this baby pool with my little babies, there were two other moms with their babies in this pool, and we started talking about how we got our babies and how much they cost. And I was shocked. First of all, this was really the first time I was talking about it. And I was like, my babies were free. And they were like, my babies cost me $50,000, $80,000 for my twins. Because they had also done IVF in America. Yes, they also had done IVF. They did not have socialized medicine to back them like I did in Israel. And it's really, really expensive. People don't realize that. And also, if you're doing IVF, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to work and that you're going to have a child. So... An idea came in my head. My background is nonprofit and fundraising and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know, is there anything else out there? Are there people helping to pay to help build families within the Jewish community? 
And ultimately, I said, okay, let's do this. And I just have not stopped since 2015. We're a hyper, hyper focused community based organization. We're not everything to everyone, but we're everything to the people that we're working with on the ground in the communities that we're serving today. I have an almost nine month old baby, Edith. I did IVF. You know, we did it because. My husband is a BRCA carrier, so we did genetic testing and genetic screening. So, so that, in many ways, was the beginning of our journey, right, once we had made that decision. This was the first stop, right? We didn't have all the emotional, you know, baggage that comes when people get to this process. But then, you know, we did a retrieval, and we ended up with one embryo at the end. And I was like, wait, this was supposed to be easy. Even when you start from a place where, like, this should be sort of fairly straightforward, it isn't, right? We had to do a second retrieval. We had to change all our meds. So I keep thinking about how much harder this would have been had I had this been after years of trying. We had a genetic mutation that largely affects Ashkenazi Jews. So in many ways, it was a Jewish journey. But there is this wider context of be fruitful and multiply. I mean, particularly among people who are more religious, there's there's a lot of pressure to have a lot of babies and have them young and, and have no problem having them. So give me the Jewish context for all of this. Yeah. I mean, sure. Listen, we're an organization that works with everybody. 30 to 35 percent of our audience is interfaith and unaffiliated. And then we also are giving mental health services and fertility grants to the ultra-Orthodox communities that we're serving. Seven, eight years ago when we started, the stigma within the communities that we're serving was so high. And it still is so present. There's so much pressure to have a family and have a large family. And like, where is your space if you're not able to be able to go to shul and celebrate with your family and friends, you know, the Jewish holidays? I was actually just talking with um, a woman who struggled for 11 years within the religious community to have a child. And she was like, you know, this is really weird, but I actually connected more to the men um, at around the Shabbos table because I didn't even know what to say to the other women my age because I don't I didn't have those experiences um, you know raising my kids or talking about diapers or nannies or strollers within the Orthodox community I think that the woman's role without children is really really hard to navigate with that being said we have the same experiences with all of the women and men that we're serving. It's like, where is the place when your peers are having kids and you're just not? Where is your place? Where is your place, whether it's in a synagogue or in your office? Like, where is your role if you want a child and you're not able to have it? So the stigma is still really, really high, but the work that we're doing, I think, is breaking down some of the walls. So in the communities that we originally started with, People aren't necessarily asking us to have like support groups in the evenings when it's dark out anymore. <laughs> Undercover, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really like they were asking us, we only want to be with other Orthodox people. We, it's so private. We have to put, you know, do it at dark. They, I don't want people to see like my car in front of this house or the synagogue. Now it's like open to everybody and it's still something private and painful, but it's, it feels a little bit different now that we've kind of untangled some of the webs of the conversation. You bring such passion, such heart, such humanity to what can be a really isolating process for people. So tell us about this podcast where you do this all the time. We're giving people another opportunity to 
understand that they're not alone in this journey. And there's so many different experiences. And we're really trying to utilize this platform of our podcast to showcase that family building can be really challenging. So right now, we're bringing in all different types of individuals with a variety of experiences from adoption to surrogacy to genetic issues. I have the opportunity to dig deep with them, allow them some space to be a little bit vulnerable and really understand what they've gone through in order to, as we say, get to the other side. So Ilana Frank, how can people find out more about Jewish Fertility Foundation? How can we listen to the show? Where do, where do we listen? Where do we find podcasts? How do we do it all? Tell us where to go. You're the expert in podcasts. But we <laughs> we are, um, first of all, we're at Jewish Fertility Foundation on social media, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. And our podcast, Fruitful and Multiplying, can be found on Apple and Spotify. Ilana Frank, thank you so much for being on our show and for all the great work you're doing. can be fraught and full of obstacles. And when things are difficult, you know what we Jews like to do? We like to laugh. Here's my conversation with comedian Esther Steinberg about her new postpartum comedy special, Burning Bush. Esther Steinberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I love this show, and it's nice to hear your voice. It's a familiar voice. Yours is a familiar voice to me, too. Your special Burning Bush is one of the funnier things I've listened to recently, and I'm just excited to have you here with us. Thank you. I like the way you say Burning Bush. (laughs) Well, a big part of your special is, you know, the birth of your son and choosing what to name him. I got to name a kid. I mean, is there anything better than getting to name a baby? Like, names have power. Like, my name is Esther Steinberg. It's on Schindler's List twice, so that's the level. I've had to walk around with this name. My name is Esther. When I tell people my name is Esther, they immediately start talking about their great-great-aunt, whose also name is Esther. And then we get to talk about tuberculosis for 45 minutes. It's a blast. My husband's name is very biblical. His name is Noah. I'm Esther. So we knew we wanted to give my son an like oppressive Jewish name. (laughs) Really roll out the Torah. Tell us what you decided to name your child. My child's name is Moses. And the joke is that we named him that because he entered the world through a burning bush. Um, But then his middle name is Benjamin. And then I'm like, my new little bit is like, it's after my favorite dollar bill. I I just like, I love the name Moses. And then in Hebrew, it's Moshe Zeev. And he's named after my husband's mom who passed and my uncle who passed named Zeev. And like Judaism, we like load up our kids. We, what is the game that I made up with my friend? Which dead Jew are you named after? <laughs> That's my like Andy Cohen bit. It's just such a loaded name. This poor kid is going to have, yeah, you, you have to do research on your dead Jew name. You know, a lot 
of the jokes in your special, I think we like could safely call Jewish jokes. I mean, I wonder if how much you think of yourself as like a Jewish comic or not at all. And then is there sort of a line? Do you ever feel like, I feel like people are so not touchy about Jewish comedy, but people are like this, you can say this, you can't say this. Actually, don't joke about Jewish stuff. Like where do you fall in that sort of spectrum of like feelings about what is funny? What is Jewish? How do we make Jewish comedy? I don't know. It's like an easy question, right? It's a softball. It's super complicated because there's like a rule in my house. Me and my husband both do comedy and we both kind of, you know, you better tell a good Jewish joke. Like the rule in the house is like, don't do the stereotypical stupid Jewish jokes that you are insulting or rude or you've heard a million times. Like if you're going to talk about your Judaism, which both of us are just like painfully Jewish, just grew up. There's no way to talk about anything without the Judaism. And so (laughs) to do it, just, I feel like my whole thing with comedy is if I talk about myself, my relationship, my mom, my kid, I'm not going stereotypical. I, I'm going personal. And so I try to stick to personal and like my actual mom and how actually negative she is. And I'm not just like, she's overbearing and she's from New York. I'm like, no, listen, like she makes comments on my YouTube videos. There's like moments that you can find where I'm like, oh, my husband, he's tall, Jewish, cha-ching. And then, you know, dead mom, I won. And it's a fun joke. And maybe I have like the cha-ching just to be even rude about like, I I know you want me to say this and I'm going to throw it out there. But but I don't think my punchline will ever be like, gosh, Jews love money. Like if someone's punchline was that, I would totally be like, come on, like, what is this? I would love to hear someone talk about their Jewish experience, but I don't want to hear like some kind of cookie cutter joke. And it helps that I'm from Tampa and not everyone thinks, what part of New York are you from? Or like, <laughs> you you have to be from New Jersey because you're like brown and loud. And I'm like, actually, I think people slap so many stereotypes on me already. They're like, what part of Miami? I'm like, I did I say Miami? So I get to be you just, just this, you know, Jewish, unique <laughs> snowflake. And yet I don't want to hear someone stereotypical. Yeah, bad Jewish joke. Your special Burning Bush was taped like what, six weeks after little Moshe was born? Yes. And the plan was in April, I was going to go and film it part of the Tribeca Film Festival and I was going to be super duper pregnant. And I was like, my question was like, is there too many, like with Ali Wong, are there too many pregnant specials? Like, is it going to look like I'm copying her? And, it, and then I had this thought, I was like, there's so many male comedians like Jim Gaffigan, for instance, who probably had four pregnancy specials, but he, we didn't see him pregnant. His wife was pregnant. So there's probably so many men who are having these pregnancy specials, but you just have no clue because they're not the ones that are showing it off on their giant tits and belly. And so uh, I was like, okay, I calmed down. And I was like, yeah, so, okay, okay, I'm pregnant. Everyone's pregnant. And then they were like, oh, we canceled it because there's like a little pandemic happening. And I just accepted it. I was like, I'll never, I'll never have a special. You know, um, I got very hormonal and was like, well, it'll not happen. And then they were like, okay, we're going to reschedule it for July. It'll be a drive-in special with cars. And I was like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, it's it's July and, or six weeks after I had a 
baby and I was going to take the opportunity. And I said to myself, we've seen a pregnancy special, but have we seen a postpartum <laughs> pandemic drive-in special for cars? I don't think so. That is original. <laughs> Esther Steinberg, the special is Burning Bush. You are very, very funny. You are welcome back on Unorthodox anytime. You're creating a new human, maybe a new special. And, you know, we're, we look forward to hanging out more with you. Thank you. And, and congratulations to you on, on the baby. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. In 2012, Rabbi Ilana Garber found out that her younger son had Fragile X Syndrome, a genetic disorder that causes intellectual disability. She shares how her life as a mother, a rabbi, and an advocate has changed over the last decade. Hmm. March 20th, the first day of spring, 2012. I was home because I had a cold. So I remember I was in bed and the doctor, the pediatrician called and she was crying. 
And she delivered this news to us that nobody thought was going to be true. I am Ilana Garber. I live in West Hartford, Connecticut. I've been a rabbi here for 17 years. Today is March 20th, 2022. And for us, it is our 10-year Fragile x anniversary, which is the 10th year since we got the devastating, at the time, diagnosis that our son has Fragile X. So Fragile X syndrome is a genetic condition that causes intellectual disability. My immediate feelings when we got this diagnosis was that I needed to mourn the dreams for my child that weren't going to happen. If you think about how we all have X's and men have X's and Y's, right, the chromosomes, a perfect X has two perfect lines that crisscross. The fragile X means that the X chromosome, the very tail of it, is broken in a premutation. If you have enough repeats of the premutation, then you don't make a certain protein in your brain that you need to regulate a whole bunch of things. Would he ever drive a car? Will he get married? Will he leave the house? Will he be able to live on his own? Will I have grandchildren? Will life be so hard for him? In kindergarten, in third grade, in fifth grade, in high school, will he have friends? Will he date? Will he always feel so incredibly other? Will he have a Jewish connection? Will he feel that he's created in God's image? Will he, to know that potentially all of those hopes and dreams were just gone was incredibly scary. Fragile X didn't enter into our world until he was over a year old. The daycare people called us in to say, we think something's up with him. He cries all the time when we try to walk away from him. He doesn't want to crawl, like all of these things. At the same time, my youngest sister called to say, apparently I'm a carrier for this thing called Fragile X. Do you know what that is? And my mother said, oh, is that like those cousins that we have in Atlanta who are intellectually disabled? I think they have Fragile X too. I called my OB. And my doctor said, Ilana, you're fine. You've been tested for all of the Jewish genetic diseases. And I said, how many Jewish genetic diseases was I tested for back in 2008? And it's now 2012. And she said, all seven. And I said, I think there are a whole lot more than that by now. And she went silent. So if you compare for Ashkenazi Jewish women, one in 30 will be carriers of Tay-Sachs. And in those same Ashkenazi Jewish women, it's one in 84 who are carriers of Fragile X, which is, I think, significant enough for us to be testing for it. We know our son has it because he looks like every other child who has Fragile X. I mean, they're beautiful. They all have, tend to have very large ears, a very high forehead, 
And there's a lot of flapping and clapping. Fragile X is a lot about meltdowns, like not a temper tantrum. That's what typical children have, a meltdown where the child is on the floor, completely screaming, crying, unable, that's like the missing protein, unable to self-regulate, even if you've taught them how, and you're about to give a sermon or running the Purim carnival or you have a hundred other children that you're supposed to be taking care of at a Shabbat dinner and your own child is just losing it. It impacts every single element of every single day. Everything. His breakfast is always the same. His lunch is always the same. His routines are always the same. We have a whiteboard in the kitchen that has to be accurate up to exactly what we're serving for dinner. And if you throw that off, even in the slightest, even with the most preparation possible, there will be problems. We'll hear a (laughs) grunt from him or uh, what in the world is going on here? Or this is not cute. He's a love. He is full of joy and humor and kisses and love. It's known that children with fragile X are very fond of the water and also very good at mimicking. Now that he's 11, he loves to go swimming. So almost every Sunday morning, we go to our town pool. The mimicking thing, though, is really interesting. When he was really little, he would mimic synagogue services. So he had a little little see door, a little prayer book, and he would sit and he would mumble like Jews do over and over again. And he would sometimes even give a sermon because, of course, his mother's a rabbi, so he knows how to give a sermon. And then he got into the election. And I joke that there is only one person who has recounted the votes more than Trump, and it is my son. And he's memorized Biden's inaugural address. Hello, my fellow Americans! And he will stand up and he will speak to my fellow Americans. This is Democracy's Day, and he says the whole thing, and he speaks like a president. And tomorrow, for America, we stand because it's one, one, America. Oh, the thing he's the most obsessed with right now is my wedding. Now, my wedding was like 15 years ago, but... My child reenacts my wedding every day. In fact, just yesterday, he remarried me and my husband, made sure we both said I do. I did put on the wedding dress once to show him. He was very overwhelmed by that, too excited to to be in the same room with me. What saddens me is that's where his cognition of it ends, right? Like he totally has memorized and mimics and, and like absorbed the wedding, but he stops on the surface and he can't move on from that. And he also can't move deeper. So for instance, every day he'll talk to me about how somebody stepped on my dress during the wedding and broke the bustle. You talk to almost any woman and she will say that the same thing happened to her, right? It's what happens at a wedding and it's fine and we're all over it. My son is obsessed with that. And every single day will say to me, 
oh, it's such a shame that your dress got stepped on. And it's like, move on. That's hard because you want him to develop. You want him to get to a place where he can see depth and nuance and color in a way that uh, he is not able to. I don't know what my ideal picture of his life is because I still don't know what he's going to be able to do on his own. I don't know. I want him to feel fulfilled. I want him to feel loved. I want him to feel safe. My cousins in Atlanta who have Fragile X, they're in their 30s. And they work in one of the very popular uh, supermarkets. And people say that it's not Shabbat unless you've been to the supermarket on Friday and you've seen these boys and they've wished you a good Shabbos. And that's a beautiful thing, right? They're part of a community. They live in a group home right across from a synagogue. Like, I would love that for him. The night that we were diagnosed, we met a couple in town by chance who also have two children and they both have fragile X. And they're a little bit older than us. And they took us under their wing and they introduced us to the fragile X community. There is this moment where you shift. And I think it's in every person's journey. At some point, it was like, okay, well, this is up to us. Like, no one's going to do this for us. We have to advocate for our child. We have to advocate to get more research. We have to advocate to get more funding. We have to help and we have to help the future. We have raised money. My family got together. We raised thousands of dollars for the Fragile X Foundation because we were just, we're going to do this. And we've gone as public as we can with our story because I, I believe that that's the only way we're going to make a difference and help other people. So I mentioned my cousins in Atlanta, and there are two sisters in Atlanta, and they have several children among them, and many of them are affected. One of those cousins was the chair of the Marcus Foundation, which created J-Screen. While she was chair, she got them to add Fragile X on to the J-Screen, the Jewish Genetic Diseases Screening Program. So Fragile X is on there. And so that day on March 20th, 2012, for sure we cried and we mourned and we we were in the depths. But we also knew that it was the first day of spring and that we had to turn this around and we had to do, we had to protect our child, we had to advocate for our child, we had to become his fiercest warriors. And there's a beautiful poem um, by Emily Pearl Kingsley titled Welcome to Holland, where the family thinks that they're going to Italy, right? When you're pregnant with a child, you think you're going to Italy, you buy all the tour books, you get so excited, and then you land and you find you're in Holland. And you say, I don't want to be in Holland. Then I realized, like she does in the poem, that, well, Holland has windmills and Holland has tulips and there's beauty in Holland. Many, many days I wake up with that poem in my head and I try to make it a Holland kind of day and try to say, what are we going to do? 
If I could talk to myself from 10 years ago, I would say there is so much love in that little boy and joy and genuine divinity. I would say God is in that child in a way that that you will uncover and discover every single day in every smile and in every laugh and in every little tiny thing that will feel like this incredible milestone. And I would tell me 10 years ago to get out of that dark room and that that feeling of being in Egypt, that, that Mitzrayim, that narrow place. And it stinks. It stinks on a regular basis. But it also is so beautiful. He's just who he is. And I would tell her that there is going to be so much snot because that low muscle tone child is going to not be able to process his mucus. And she's gonna fight, fight with the school. Every year I call the nurse and I say, let me just tell you and remind you, he's not sick, you won't send him home. I would tell that woman in the dark room that she's gonna become this lioness of a mama and make herself so darn proud of who she is and what she can do for her children, for other people's children, God willing, one day for future generations to come. And uh, that's what the first day of spring is all about. That was Rabbi Ilana Garber of the Rabbinical Assembly. She wanted us to remind you that it's worth it for anyone of any background who is considering having kids to explore genetic testing, not just for Jewish genetic diseases, but also for conditions like Fragile X syndrome that can affect all communities. listened to this show before, you've heard the name Robert Scaramuccia. He's one of our producers, and he's responsible for making us sound good. Being a podcast producer is mostly a behind-the-scenes role, though Robert did appear on our Passover episode last month to symbolically buy my cat during the holiday. This week, he's back on the show, sharing a beautiful story about his late mother. This piece was recorded in February 2020 at a live event organized by the Yale Alumni Fund and the Yale Alumni Association at the Green Space in New York City. Have an enormous round of applause for Robert Scaramuccia. We're really just starting off in a good place. I can, I can feel that. Thank you. <laughs> so it's last May, and I'm sitting in Trumbull College Courtyard at my graduation. And it's like 87 degrees out because it's May in New Haven, and I am just sweating through my heavy black cap and gown. I have like sweaty old man hair that my cap is giving me. And you know, we're just, we're doing graduation. Head of college, Margaret Clark, is up there, and everybody's doing the weird thing where you go up and you grab your diploma, and then you shake hands, and then you freeze, and then you smile, and then you blink right as they're taking the picture, and then you go and sit back down. <laughs> and. I am just in the middle of this graduation and I look over towards the parents section to see if I can spot my mom and dad. 
And, you know, it's pretty easy to spot my dad. Uh, he is mostly bald. He has a goatee. And he just kind of has the general vibe of somebody who wears a Yankees jersey to a Red Sox game, <laughs> which is something he did a lot when I was a kid. And I would be sitting right next to him and get heckled, but it was fine. Um, and I think, you know, I spot him, I spot my aunt, I spot my uncle, and I think it'll be easy to spot my mom because she is a black woman with blonde hair in a wheelchair. And that's just not something you see very often, especially at Yale graduations. And I look over and it's actually really hard to spot her because there is like a sea of more sweaty students just right there. And so I can barely see like the tufts of her dyed blonde hair through all of their sweaty graduation caps. But I do make her out. I see her there. And of course, I'm glad she's there. This is my mom watching me graduate from Yale. I'm especially glad because, to be totally honest, neither me nor my dad nor my mom were totally sure that she was going to make it to my graduation. You know, when I was in high school, she would have coughing fits even when she didn't have a cold. My freshman fall, she was hospitalized and I remember watching the live stream of the Yale Symphony Orchestra's Halloween show on my phone when I was sitting in a chair that I pulled up next to my mom's ICU bed. My sophomore winter, she got a double lung transplant, and which was great because she didn't need her oxygen tank anymore, but was also bad because she now needed a feeding tube. And all that time, you know, she would say, you know, she's not sure that she would make it to my graduation but that's all she wanted to do. And so of course, I am so incredibly happy that she is there watching me do this thing. Or 97% of me is glad that she's there. 3% of me kind of wishes that she had stayed home. Maybe 5% of me, maybe 7% of me. Because when you have a mom that's that sick, you don't get to have the graduation that your friends are having you're a caretaker at some point during that day. And that's all my mind was thinking about. There are a million things that can go wrong when somebody who is that sick is outside of their home, and that is all I'm thinking about. So head of college Margaret Clark is up there giving an inspiring speech. She's talking about how, you know, these were your bright college years, but you're about to have even brighter post-college years. And all I'm thinking about is, Wow, I hope my mom's blood sugar doesn't go low, because she was also a diabetic. I hope her blood sugar doesn't go low, and she passes out in this 85-degree heat. Margaret Clark is saying, you've all done amazing things in math and science and, you know, something to do with the humanities that nobody really understands. And what I'm thinking in my head is, what if my mom's feeding tube just falls out randomly, because that's a thing that feeding tubes do, and she can't take her medication or get her nutrition? Margaret Clark is saying, you know, you're all going to go on to be great hedge fund managers and none of you are going to cause the second great recession. It's all going to be great, everybody. And I'm thinking, what if my mom suddenly has to go to the bathroom? I haven't had time this morning to tell my dad that, okay, the one bathroom in Trumbull College that you can actually fit a wheelchair in is back behind you, up the elevator, and down the hall on the second floor. But so graduation keeps happening. Everybody gets their diplomas. I go up and get mine. And everything is okay. 
it's all over, people are milling about, and, and something that I didn't mention at the beginning of this story is that we're all sitting in these chairs that are just weirdly fancy. They're white plastic folding chairs, but because it's a Yale graduation, they're also like padded and just very nice and we're all having a nice time. Anyway, I just wanted to really put that image in your head. <laughs> but so I go over to my parents, you know, I hug my mom, I hug my dad, I say hi to my aunt and uncle and everything is great. Nothing has gone wrong. And then, you know, my aunt and uncle, they have to leave and my dad has to go pick up the car, which is gonna take a while because it's graduation day in New Haven, Connecticut. And so I'm just there with my mom and I'm looking at my friends taking pictures with each other in the courtyard and saying their goodbyes. And I think maybe I should go and do that. And then my mom looks up at me and she says, toast and jelly, I have to go to the bathroom. And toast and jelly, it was her nickname for me. I don't really know why. I'm not really that particular a fan of toast and jelly on it. <laughs> But that's her nickname for me. And what you have to know about my mom is when she says, I have to go to the bathroom, that means she's had to go to the bathroom for the past half hour. And if we don't get to a bathroom right now, we're gonna have a situation on our hands. And so cut to 30 seconds later, I've gone up that elevator and into that bathroom. I've wheeled my mom in and she's in there doing what she has to do and I'm standing outside of the bathroom door. Um, this is the second floor of Trumbull College. There's like a sliver of hallway, maybe 20 feet long. And again, it's weirdly fancy. It's got a hardwood floor. It's got the fake fireplaces that Yale loves so much that you can't actually use because they can't trust us with fire. And so my mom is there and I'm standing outside the bathroom door and I'm doing this thing that I'd gotten really good at over the past four years, which is where you stand in the one spot where you can hear when your mom flushes the toilet so that you know when to wheel her out. But you're not standing so close to the bathroom that somebody who walks by thinks you have a weird obsession with the sound of toilets flushing. And so I'm there and I'm looking at this tiny hallway and I'm just thinking, about a lot of things. I had spent about 40% of my Yale career in this hallway. You know, over there on the right is the elevator, and I would come down from my suite with my laundry bag that was stuffed with button downs and honestly, too many Mountain Dew branded t-shirts for the fact that I was 21 years old. And I would go down and bring that laundry to the laundry room. Or over on my left was the computer room where I would have a paper about the urban centers of former Portuguese colonies do at 8 a.m. And so I was writing it from 2 a.m. to 7.59 a.m. And all the other papers like that. You know, down the hall, if you turn the corner, go down the hall, there's the library that's always weirdly hot and weirdly too dark. There's the window ledge where I would wait for my ex-girlfriend. All of these things that I would try to communicate to my mom when I called her on Sundays, but never really knew how to do because she was someone who barely graduated high school. She never went to college. How do you explain this weird college, this weird castle of a school to somebody like that? And before I can reflect too much on how she's finally here and maybe she can really understand my experience of the past four years, she flushes the toilet and I go and I wheel her out and I'm like, okay, we can head back downstairs. Everything will be fine. My dad will be there with the car. And then she looks up at me and she says, toast and jelly, my sugar is really low. And I'm like, okay, a million things can go wrong. Here we go. 
She's a diabetic. If her sugar goes too low, she will pass out. We need to handle this. And so I reach into her purse and I grab this emergency blood sugar needle that's like in this emergency orange case and you pull it out and it is the largest needle that I've ever held in my life and you have to mix the chemicals together so it makes glucose or something. Again, I had a humanities degree, I have no idea. <laughs> and so I'm mixing, I go and I put my diploma and everything on the mantle of that fake fireplace. I come back over, I'm mixing all these things, I hand this to her and I'm just, I am there in my cap and gown with sweaty hair and just armed with an ambiguous humanities degree and this needle and I'm handing it to this woman who has a Jesus necklace and 80s shades and Adidas jogging pants and I just really hope that nobody comes around the corner and sees just the most pathetic drug deal ever, <laughs> even on Yale's campus. And thankfully nobody does and her sugar goes back up, we're good, we go back downstairs, we go into Trumbull Courtyard my dad isn't there because apparently he parked the car in like Rhode Island. And so, and so I, park, I park the wheelchair on the walkway in Trumbull College where I put it so that my mom can look left and see the pink and yellow flowers by the dining hall and she can look right and she, she can see the weirdly fancy folding chairs. And we just sit there. And I'm like, okay, the blood sugar thing happened, we're good. The bathroom thing happened, we're good. Maybe I'm okay. And then I'm looking out at the courtyard and I'm seeing, again, my friends talking, my classmates talking, and I realize that there is something that I hadn't thought about that is worse than any of those other things. And it is my friends coming over right now and talking to me and my mom. My mind is just spiraling. I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, what if I never told Andy quite how sick she was? What if I never told Quan that she was a black woman? That's not what you expect when you look at me. What if I never told Josh that she would be in a wheelchair? And I am just so incredibly scared that they're going to come over and, I don't know, be speechless or something. And then my mom will be embarrassed and then I will be embarrassed and this will ruin the entire day for her. And you know, my friends start coming over. You know, Josh and his mom and his brother who took me out to dinner the night before because my parents couldn't make it down to class day with my mom's condition. He comes over. Andy comes over with his parents. Quan comes over with his parents. All these people keep coming over. And of course, they're so incredibly nice because it's a Yale graduation and Yale people are freaking nice. And suddenly, my mom is talking to their moms about how proud they are that their kids are graduating from college. My mom is not talking about a breathing test result or the fact that there's no provostatin left in her medicine box or any of these other things. She just gets to be a proud, normal mom for the first time in a really, really long time. She, my ex-girlfriend's mother came over to talk to us and she talked to us, she was from Oklahoma, she talked about wild tornadoes in Oklahoma. And I'm like, okay, my mom's never been to Oklahoma, she will never go there, she's not legally allowed to fly because of her medical, because of her medical condition, she's not like on a watch list or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom just gets to talk about tornadoes in Oklahoma and not the fact that she's sick and keeps losing more and more weight. She just gets to be a mom. And so, you know, my friends, we say our goodbyes and they leave and I'm just there with my mom. 
My dad's still not here because apparently he had to park the car in Upper Vermont. I don't know. And so we're there, and I'm looking out at this courtyard with the weird chairs, and I see the hammock where Josh drunkenly fell out of it a few days before. I see the bench where I had lied to my ex-girlfriend about getting back together the last weekend. I see the spot under the tree in Trumbull Courtyard where my friends and I said we would bury our mini-fridge as a time capsule, <laughs> which we never actually did, so please don't go looking for that. And I look at all these things and all these memories that I have, and I want to tell my mom about it. But it's 87 degrees out in New Haven, Connecticut, and it is way too hot to keep up a conversation. And I'm just like, whatever. We will wait, we will drive home, and I will talk to her about it when we're in the air conditioning. And so we just kind of sit in silence, and my mom looks out at this courtyard, which is just wood and grass and dirt to her and we just sit and enjoy each other's silent company. And I didn't know then that my mom had barely been able to get into the car that morning for the drive, and that my dad had told her, you know, maybe you shouldn't come to this graduation because you are really not doing too well. And that she had said, no, I am going. I didn't know then that two days later, we would go to the hospital for a routine appointment and they would admit her and that she would be in the ICU a few days after that. And I don't know now if in the two months left of her life last summer, when she was in the ICU and up to the respiratory unit and back to the ICU and back and forth and back and forth, just staring at the clock that was in front of her hospital bed, if she ever thought about just sitting in Trumbull Courtyard with her son and looking at the grass and the trees and the dirt. But I like to think that she did. And 100% of me is glad that she was there that day. Thank you. grateful to Robert for sharing the story and for everything he does for this show. Mark Liel and I will be back next week with a regular episode. Until then, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Mark Oppenheimer and Liel Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, and our team includes Sara Fredenator, Daron Risquet, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Sharon Mars at Temple Israel in Columbus, Ohio. We come to you from Sunday brunch with my mom, my baby, and a mimosa. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>